This is Tales from the Pros, where business leaders and influencers share their stories of inspiration, struggles, and successes. And I'm your host, Michael Giorgio. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Tales from the Pros. And this is Michael Giorgio, your host and co-founder of Imagine Ovation. My special guest with me here today is a best-selling author and internationally recognized speaker on sales, success, personal development, leadership, and entrepreneurship. He has three privately held staffing firms that generate annual revenues of $50 million. These firms serve some of the most well-recognized brands in the U.S. He speaks to and provides transformational workshops to sales organizations throughout the world. His blog, thesalesblog.com, is read by 60,000 plus people each month, and he has consistently been named one of the 25 most influential people in in the world in sales and marketing, and has also written three best-selling books, such as The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, The Lost Art of Closing, and the latest book, Eat Their Lunch, Winning Customers Away from Your Competition, which I love that title. Please welcome... Anthony Anarino. Anthony, thank you so much for being with me here today, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So Anthony, what really caught my attention uh, to have you on my show is, I, I mean, we know we, our team does a lot of research on who to interview and so on and so forth. And I saw you on you know, several influential lists in just sales leadership and marketing that you've been featured in. So I thought definitely to interview this guy. And I also did my research and I, I love your sales content, very honest and raw. Uh, you just kind of say how it is and it's very insightful as well. And you kind of describe the entire sales proce- process and even talk about just leadership and even marketing. So I really love that. So I thought it's just a, you know, truly a great idea to interview you because I, I definitely need more, uh, more sales content in my, uh, in my podcast. So I really appreciate Anthony for being on the show. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you asking me on. No problem. My, my, my pleasure. So Anthony, just to kind of kick things off. How did you really get into sales training, leadership, and entrepreneurship? Can you tell me a little bit about that story? Reluctantly. I, I, I started out fronting a hair metal band when I was 17, and I did that till I was 26. At some point, I ended up in California, and I had a mentor, uh, a new manager that came into the branch of a staffing firm I was working for, and he literally forced me into outside sales. I did not want to go into outside sales. I was much happier being an operational person because I thought sales was something that you do to someone, not for someone and with someone. Mm-hmm. But what he recognized is that I was already winning accounts, even though I wasn't a salesperson. And he forced me into outside sales. And from there, I started to find success comes very, very easily if you hustle. I had a brain surgery in 1992 while I was working in that branch, and that forced me to come back to Ohio to have a surgery, and I lost a piece of the right front temporal lobe of my brain, and I wasn't allowed to drive for two years. So I went back into the family business at that time, and this time, I instead of being an operational person, I stayed in outside sales because I liked it so much. And I started reading and studying everything. I started taking courses. I started to uh, listen to every audio program that I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. And I really embraced the the job of figuring out what it is that allows someone to be successful in sales so that I could improve my own game. And then I became a leader and I had to improve other people's game, which is a very, very different endeavor than trying to improve yourself. When you have to improve yourself, 
that's a hundred percent within your control. But when you have to help others, then you're dealing with another entity. And basically that's what we do in sales. Anyways, we help other people change and get better results and they can get without us. Uh, I did that long enough that I had success and I started to have people ask me for help. And I decided some time ago to start helping other people by writing the blog and then speaking and doing all the other things that I do now. That's great. And I love how in some of your content you talk about uh, there's some there's just this wrong kind of stigma on salespeople, right? And that you know it's really the the, the true salespeople are the ones that are essentially value providers. What are your thoughts on that? I think there's a lot of bad advice on the internet. Yeah. I think you have to be very very careful what you read, and I think you have to look through a a filter that says, what is the person's intention who's writing something that says that salespeople are awful people, they're self-oriented, they're pushy, they're smarmy, that they shouldn't interrupt anybody and make a phone call, that the only thing that you're allowed to do now is wait passively for inbound leads to come. And I think you should look at that and you should say to yourself, who benefits? Who's benefiting from this line of thinking? Because I have a tough time Uh, looking at sales experts and people who believe that they're in the sales enablement or sales improvement game who are self-loathing. They hate the part of themselves that's a salesperson. They don't like asking people for things. They think that selling is something that you're doing to someone unless they're actually asking you to do something for them. It's just wrong. And it's not what salespeople do today. It's not what we've done for dozens of years, maybe longer than that. And Michael, I asked this question. I used to teach a class at Capital University called Personal Selling, and I would ask all of the undergrads to raise their hand if one of their parents was in sales. <laughs> and about six hands would go up out of 30, something like that. And I'd say, leave your hands up if your mom is in sales. And, and I would say, so all these things that you used to describe salespeople after they gave me a giant list of stereotypes... So I would say your mom is a pushy, selfish, smarmy, self-oriented person who does things to people and makes them buy things they don't want. Because that's what we think about salespeople because of a stereotype that hasn't been true for a long time. I mean, certainly there's bad actors. There's no question about that. But when you would look at a, a distribution curve, a bell curve, would the number of bad actors in sales be any more than there would be the number of bad actors that would be lawyers or doctors? I mean, of course, there are people who are self-oriented in every endeavor, but most of the time it's not true in sales because it doesn't serve us in sales. If you go in and you're pushy and you're self-oriented and you're, you're slimy and no one wants to work with you, that's not a great strategy for winning deals. Right. So people don't behave that way because if they were to behave that way, there are so many choices available to you. I can buy from someone else. I think you just have to be careful of what you look at. There's a lot of people who give advice on the internet and they do it to feed you their fears. And I would tell you never eat anybody else's fears because you get infected with that. And if you're not smarmy, self-oriented and pushy, don't think that you are because other people say that just because you're in the game of sales and you're proactive, that you're those things because you're not. Absolutely. And I agree. And that's what, that's why I asked that question at these, because I want to really remove that stigma because I've been in sales over 12 years and, and, you know, you're really the front facing person of, of the company. You're, the, you're out there grinding it out, trying to clip, you know, generate the leads and 
and, and close business. I mean, that's the, without, without sales, but good salespeople, companies can't thrive. They can't grow, you know, and we'll talk about increasing pipeline in a little bit, but I really want to remove that stigma. Um, and I think it's, it's good. I love that you talk about, you know, it just being that the, that a good salesperson is not that pushy and not that, you know, there's a lot of, and we'll talk about kind of the characteristics and the personalities that go with a good salesperson. So this kind of goes into my next question. In really your experience, Anthony, being doing sales for so long um, and just training and coaching different companies and people around the world, I know you've seen a lot of old school aggressive sales tactics being used. So does it does it take a certain type of person and character to sell the right way in today's generation? Do you think it's it's not, you know, obviously we know it's a lot about hustle. You have to, you have to work hard. You can't be a lazy salesperson and expect to close deals. You have to work, you have to, you have to be work very, very hard. But do you think it takes that certain type of character trait as well? Or are you thinking kind of be built? You can be built for sure. There's a lot of things that you can learn. And I, I don't understand the thinking that I see a lot of people have that says you have to be born a salesperson. There's a lot of people who learn how to sell. There's no question about that. There are some people who are born with a certain set of attributes, but character matters a great deal. Who you are matters more than what you sell. And I, I would tell you that the best salespeople are other oriented. They care about other people. They really try to make a difference in other people's lives. They're extremely disciplined. They're optimistic, future oriented and empowered people who are resourceful and take initiative. All of those things kind of over index when you look at an individual to say, do they have some sort of natural advantage to be a salesperson? Uh, I'm going to tell you, I think that the bad behavior is not the fault of the salesperson. I think that salespeople get into this game and depending on who their leader is and who they're mimicking, they end up with really bad language choices. And they'll say things that we don't even think is a bad language choice, but I do. They'll say something like, I, I want to make sure we get a win-win deal. Well, it's not your customer's concern that you get a win. You, you have to do what you do because you're serving them. And if your investment is uh, greater than your competitors and you have to explain that investment to them, then that's a different conversation. But you don't say we need a win-win here because they're not concerned about your win. They're concerned about their win. So you have to say something like, listen, I want to make sure you don't underinvest. And while I'm happy to look at the solution again with you, I want to make sure that you invest exactly the amount necessary to produce the results that we've been talking about. And I don't want you to invest less than that because you're going to put those at risk. But you have to have good language. So it depends on who you're with, who you're listening to. Uh, I can do that. I don't have to be pushy. I don't have to be smarmy. I don't have to be manipulative in any way. I can have a consultative conversation because I have good language choices and I know how to handle those conversations. So I think when salespeople say a lot of things, um, it's because their manager told them to. I, I heard one salesperson say, listen, I, I really need you to commit to doing this because if you don't, I might lose my job. <laughs> that, 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 that kind of desperation is yeah. it's maybe one of the most horrible things I've ever heard a salesperson say as a way to try to pressure somebody to do this. And that salesperson was told to do that by their sales manager. They didn't come up with that on their own. But, but that's the kind of thing that there's a little bit of hangover for people who didn't have a great leader and a great model. But most of the best salespeople at some point figure out good language choices by mimicking a lot of what they see other people use. Yeah, it's not about the. It's not really about the student. It's about the teacher. You know, a lot of times. A lot of times. Yeah, I I think that's a, a great statement. I mean, I've experienced that too. You know, I it's 
for me and me and my company, we try to tell our, our sales our sales people, you know, to make sure that they have the right intent and motive um, for what they're doing. And obviously, we have goals and, and quotas. We all do, right, in our companies. But we don't. We want to make sure that value is provided first, um, and that we make the 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 prospect or the lead feel very comfortable. And that, and if there's no value, and if they don't see any value, then then it may it may not be the right fit for them, and we'll tell them that. You know, I think a lot of it is about setting expectations up front and transparency. And I've even heard you talk about that in your videos, and I think that's so uh, that's so critical. You know what I mean? And just having that, I talk. And if you hear a lot of my podcasts, I talk a lot about um, intent and motive behind what you're doing. Um, and if your motive, ultimate motive, is just to just to win the deal, and you'll you know do, you'll do whatever it takes just to win that deal. I, I don't think that's the best motive. I think you need to, like you said before, you need to have that character trait to be able to to show that person or that company, you know what, we're really trying to help you. And I, I believe strongly that our product and service can really, really help you. Yeah, you got to be careful with ideas like whatever it takes. I mean, it, it's a nice idea when you say it, like whatever it takes, I'll do whatever it takes. Yeah. But you know what, if it's illegal, uh, not whatever it takes. If it's immoral, not whatever it takes. And if you're using force in, in oh. any case, and there are some people who still teach that, uh, unfortunately, but if you, if you, you have to use force to do a, a whatever it takes approach, then you're wrong because what you're saying is that I'm not good enough to use persuasion or influence or inspiration mm-hmm. or some more positive method or means to produce the outcome I want. So I I'm opposed to the, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, if that means learn, to, to be better, to be more persuasive, learn to have greater influence on your own, right. learn to find a way to inspire people to help them. But if you get to force, then you're, you're so far off base, it's going to be difficult to help you sell. There's not too many people that do this and there's not too many that train it, but occasionally you do see it and you do hear it now. So, and that goes to my next question. So what you've noticed over the years is a lot of what people do wrong. You think that force is a, is one of the kind of the um, incorrect sales approaches or do you, are there other ones that you've seen that are not, are not good? Like what other, what other uh, tactics have you seen over the years that, that people are really doing wrong in their sales? I think most people, I would go the other direction. I wouldn't, I, I would tell you that where salespeople, the, the, the flip here, Michael is the other direction, right? We've now gotten so soft that if I were to tell you to use a high pressure tactic, you wouldn't know how to do it. And you, you've never been taught or trained to use high pressure tactics. You're probably more likely if you're listening to this and you're a salesperson to have gotten too soft and gone the other way, because the advice that people have been given, especially over the last eight or 10 years is never be closing. Let the client tell you when they're ready to make the next step. Or they say things like the buyer has all the power now and they're going to connect with you when they're 57% through their decision-making cycle, Mm -hmm. which is not true unless you don't do anything and you let somebody else have zero to 50%. They tell you just connect and try to create value for people. And then they'll let you know when they're ready to do something and you'll be preferred because you've given them content on the internet. None of this is true. You still have to ask for commitments. You still have to interrupt people. You still have to use cold outreach. You still have to try to control the process and explain to the client, listen, if we don't get other stakeholders from your team into this conversation, we're going to be so in front of them and so disconnected that by the time they find out what we're doing, they're going to want to put the brakes on because we're so far ahead of them. Who do we need to get into a room? Who's going to be friendly to this and whose support are we going to need? 
But if, if you can't have that conversation or if you're afraid of having that conversation, you cannot be a trusted advisor and you cannot give people good counsel. So I think the mistakes are being made on the other side where the individual isn't really stepping up and saying, look, I'm a peer. I want to be a trusted advisor. I want to give you good counsel. I can take you from current state to future state with the ideas I have, but these are the things we need to do. I think it's gone exactly the opposite direction, but it's a pendulum. Mm -hmm. At some point, we swung way too far in the direction of high pressure. And now we've swung way too far in the direction of uh, be milk toast and just be a wimp and a wuss. And I don't think that that serves salespeople. I think you have to be a peer. You have to believe that you belong at the table with the decision makers you're sitting across from. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that getting in the room with the right people, not just, you know, the actual, like you said, the decision makers uh, helps a lot in in converting the the deal and, and even showing a bit of urgency. Uh, do, do you ever talk about urgency in any of your sales approaches, showing a little bit of urgency? Because sometimes the the leads and prospects they don't they don't sometimes feel that sense of urgency. They say, "Oh, hey, I I, I got to put this in the back burner a little bit now." Because because it, yeah. it, it's not urgent for yeah. them. I mean, it's urgent for us. And I think if you try to manufacture urgency that isn't real, yeah. It's not a great tactic. I talked to somebody a couple of days ago that told me they were trying to manufacture urgency by offering a discount. Well, they're not buying what you sell because they want a discount. They're buying what you sell because they want a new result. And you have to go back to the implications of not changing. You have to go to what's the upside? What do you gain from making these changes? And I think that when people try to manufacture something false, uh, that's not a great tactic because there's no real urgency. And Listen, for most of us, the truth of the matter is if our client moves and signs a contract and starts with us September 1st or November 1st, their life doesn't end. Their business isn't massively challenged by that. It's good for them to do it. And I'd want to move the results forward. But the way to just do it is with honesty and integrity yeah. and say, you know, um, listen, it, if if you move it up to September, I can have resources applied where you can start to get that done sooner. What would we have to do to make that happen on your side so that we could get the resources and move your side faster? I mean, you have to be a grown up and just have the conversation. Yeah. Michael, you asked the questions that make me sound like I'm really angry about all this stuff. No, no, <laughs> I, I love it. And I'm not. No, uh, great. I'm, yeah. I'm just sharing with uh, my thoughts with you and, and some of the stuff that I see that you're pointing to. Uh, I think damages salespeople. I, I think that what we really do in sales is we go out and we do something for people and with people that allow them to get better results without us. And when it's framed as something negative, uh, I struggle with that. Yeah. I struggle with people who believe that they're sales experts and who are going to talk about improvement, but then uh, just talk poorly about sales and salespeople in every, at every turn. Yeah. And this is, this is exactly the reason I want to interview you because I, I, like I said, I've been in sales for a, for a long time, sales and marketing for over 12 years. And a lot of when I've told people, oh, I'm in sales or, well, I built a company, but I have to sell, you know, and when people say, oh, but, you know, it seems like when you're trying to sell, not me per se, but salespeople, they, they have these wrong stigmas. I'm like, that's not true at all. You know, maybe they're not doing it right, but that's not true. So that's the reason, that's the big reason I want to interview you because I've seen a lot of your content. I love it. And I, I wanted you to kind of remove that stigma. And I, and I, I think, I mean, you are, whoever listens to this, so then this is great. Um, but so we talked a little bit about, about um, you know, sales tactics and, and character traits and things like that. So in, in increasing pipeline, you know, pipeline is very important, increasing the lead, the amount of leads that we have, qualified leads. 
it's critical in growing a business. So do you have certain outbound approaches, Anthony, or strategies that are very effective and not just, you know, B2B or even B2B, even B2C selling, such as cold calling? Do you have any t- tactics that have worked well for you or in your training methods? I, I think that the phone is still the primary uh, choice if you want to accelerate the growth and acquire appointments that lead to um, opportunities being created. I, I think that that's still the best choice. I don't think about prospecting methods the same way that most people do, though. I think about it in the terms of how do I build a campaign? So I'm going to use every tool available. I'm going to try to use uh, referrals Mm -hmm. or introductions if I can get them. I'm going to try to use the phone. I'm going to use LinkedIn in-mail. I'm going to use emails. I'm going to use social media where I can actually share something of value. I'm going to use a nurture campaign. I'm going to show up at events. I'm going to do everything that I can. I think that the most complete approach that you can put together would be omni-channel. So I would want to look at as many different choices as I have. And then, uh, Michael, I think about this in the terms of a campaign. So what's my first communication? What's my second communication? What's my ninth communication? What am I teaching them? How am I making it easy for them to say, this is the kind of person that I want to talk to. This is the kind of person that I want on my team. And if you just choose one medium, like a lot of people right now, for some reason, well, I know what the reason is. They like email because they think email is efficient and they can blast emails out to people. But you really don't want to trade efficiency for effectiveness. If it means that you have to do eight times the work to generate 16 times the meetings, then do what you have to do to get the 16 times the meetings. And and we've now started to rely on technology too heavily. And technology, especially when it's automated, there's no human being there. Oh, yeah. You're not talking to anyone. So the email that shows up in my inbox that I know has been sent by uh, a marketing solution, there's no reason for me to have a conversation with that person. I just delete the email. But if you call, then I'm, I'm on the phone and I have to have a conversation with you at some level. And I have a really good shot of getting something done if I know how to do that. But I would tell you, I would want to use as many tools as I possibly could. And kind of, and you, and you test and see what works and what doesn't work, or do you feel a lot of them, there's something that works in every single tactic? There's, there's always something that works. And I I will tell you what I'm counting on, um, more than anything is I'm counting on persistence and value creation, winning the day for me. The reason I think in terms of campaigns is because maybe the first message doesn't resonate. Maybe the timing is wrong. But over time, my persistence is going to allow me to get a meeting with someone. And I think from there, uh, everything's under my power and my control. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, that's great. And, you know, you talked a little bit about social um, and, and, you you know, we're all on social media every day. And I feel it's I mean, it, it is very cluttered. I mean, it's just everyone's on it. Right. But what do you consider in regards to at least social selling is huge and generating leads and prospects? But like I said before, the internet is very cluttered. So what have you experienced that works best when creating uh, social sales content and creating that engagement to generate an ROI? Or do you just feel create that content and they'll come to you? Or do you actually have these follow-up steps and methods after the content, like like call to actions and things like that? You have a- I, don't, I, I don't even know what social selling is. And, and, and here's why. Because when people say you should be social selling, what they say is, go out and connect with people on the internet and then try to add value for them 
and then don't sell them. Don't try to sell them. Just connect and try to add value. Well, if the idea of selling means not selling, I, I don't know how that works. And if your intention is to have an interaction with someone where they buy something from you, the intent is actually to sell somebody something. And there's nothing wrong with having the intent to sell. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. If you believe in your heart of hearts that you can make a difference for people, why would you ever feel bad about trying to make a difference for people? It makes no sense to me. So there's not social selling. And, and it started out as social media marketing. And this is my view. I think it's above the funnel. I still have to, to be prospecting, to be truly prospecting. I have to ask someone for a meeting. And if I'm not asking for a meeting, I am not prospecting. I'm playing on LinkedIn or I'm tweeting my face off. I'm trying to be entertaining and educational in some way, but that's nurture. That's brand awareness. That's awareness of your thinking. It's even perhaps capturing mindshare if you create really great content. So I think of it as nurture content and not prospecting itself. And the reason that I'm adamant about this is that you can do a really good job connecting with people and sharing valuable content on the internet and not have any meetings. That, that's, that is possible. And in fact, for most people, it's likely. The second thing I will tell you is that there is a difference between what people describe as social selling and what is actually content marketing. And content marketing is extremely powerful above the funnel if you want awareness for who you are and what you do. And you're doing a podcast, so you know this. This podcast is giving people an awareness of who you are and what you believe and what you do. And the people that are listening to this, the relationship is being nurtured. And you're sharing insights with them that helps you capture their mind share. Now that I'm a hundred percent for, and I love all of the toolkit that's available. Mm -hmm. There's probably not very many people that do as much with the toolkit as I do when it pertains to publishing a blog post every single day, uh, tweeting like crazy, having a Facebook page with 20,000 people on it, a YouTube channel. I'm, I'm all in on nurturing and awareness, but I'm a content creator. It's just more difficult when you apply something as a general rule that says you should be social selling and not doing cold outreach. And when you think about a financial services firm, they're not allowed to produce content. And if they were, they wouldn't be allowed to say anything. And you look at a pharmaceutical company with 600 reps, they're not allowed to produce any content. They can't say anything at all. All they can do is share the very vanilla stuff that marketing is allowed to produce because they can't even make a promise and they can't talk about the results they produce because they can't be produced equally for everybody who buys that product or service. It's a very, very complicated thing, but I would tell you as a brand and as an individual, as a salesperson, you want to be known and you want to be known for having ideas, but you have to think about that as above the funnel. And you have to think about it as when I start prospecting and making calls, I'm going to leverage those tools to nurture the relationship. Because if the social selling people are right and you're not allowed to make an ask, then pick up the phone and make the ask and then do all the value creating with no ask attached to it. That would be my best advice for people around that. So I love what you said. It's not it's not social selling. It's more nurturing, right? It's like content marketing, which nurtures and spreads that awareness of what you do and the value that you that you offer, and people actually can see you can reach such a large audience, um, people around the world, and they can actually see who you are, like on video, right, on YouTube. They can see your facial expression, they can see your intent, they can see a lot of things, and that will help them to just understand you better. And then if they need, you know, if they contact you, they contact you, right? Like, has that has that been effective for you in terms of them 
reaching back out to you from your content? That's kind of where I'm trying to get at. Do they? A hundred percent. Okay. I, I mean, there, there's no doubt that there's tremendous value in yeah. content. There, there's no doubt about it. I would just say you have to be careful. If you think it's a substitute for cold outreach, you're not going to generate the results you're capable of. I understand. Got it. Got it. Cool. Um, what would you say is the most powerful and effective sales tactic that you've experienced like, overall? Or do you kind of feel that they're all very powerful in their own ways? Or is there something that's really worked well for you and just in terms of just outbound? There, there's nothing better than real chops. And by that, I mean business acumen, situational knowledge, the ability to actually have a conversation at an executive and strategic level with someone that you're you're engaged with. There's nothing that's going to over-index for you like that. That's the one thing of all the things that you could work on and you're being told you need to work on social selling, you need to work on automation, you need to work on your sales stack. None of those things matter when you're sitting in front of the client. What they're judging is, do I believe this person has the ability to help me have a better future than I have now? Do I trust this person? Do they have the kind of advice that I can take? Do I want them on my team? All of those things matter way more than anything else. And a lot of what we're talking about now in technology is about trying to be more efficient and reduce the cost of sale when we shouldn't be doing that. We should say to reduce the cost of sale, I need to be so effective in front of the client that I win because that's what we get paid for. We don't get paid for making sales calls. We get paid for winning business and helping clients change. So I, I think that the, the getting the chops part, getting business acumen, turning off Howard Stern and listening to CNBC in the morning, <laughs> listening to the economic reports coming in so you understand what's going on, mm -hmm. reading the news so you know what's coming down the, the pipe that's going to impact your client so you have some idea of why they should change. All of those things matter more than anything else. So if you want the one killer app, I would say chops. You know, be, be somebody that people should be doing business with because no one else on earth is going to give them the same experience or the same results. And when you say chops, do you mean even just creating influence? Is that, or is there a lot more to it? Creating influence uh, yourself to other people or kind of like what you did for yourself. You're, you're an influencer, you're a sales influencer. you you, people can, I find you valuable, you know, so I'm going to come to you um, to help my company. And that's chops. I have a uh, subject matter expertise in a couple areas, a very, a couple very narrow areas that I have subject matter expertise in. If you called and asked me for help with uh, home plumbing, I would go to Google and find you a plumber because I don't know the first thing about it and I wouldn't touch anything that's outside of what my domain expertise is. So you need domain expertise. And I continually tease salespeople with the idea that you only need two things to be a trusted advisor, trust and advice. So you have to work really hard on the advice part. What do I know that can help other people? How am I developing my insights and my ideas? The sharing stuff on the internet, first you have to have something worth sharing. First you have to have the insights and the experience or what I call situational knowledge that you've seen enough things that you can say, this is probably a better choice than that and here's why. That's the part that most people need to continue to work on developing because that's the part that really, really matters. Mm -hmm. That's chops. Cool. Love it. <clears throat> and uh, so in regards to the entire sales process, Anthony, you know, after providing value interest, generating leads, implementing the follow-up process, what, uh, what do you consider the most important tips and strategies for closing that actually closing the deal? I know you have a book on this um, or not and, and not having the lead go, go dark on you essentially. That's control the process. 
You, you have to work to control the process. The book, The Lost Art of Closing, is my recipe for that. And I took Neil Rackham's work in spin selling about the advance mm -hmm. and I practiced it and I wrote down the things that I recognized were important. Clients need to commit to time to have a conversation and understand what it is that they could look at. Then they need a commitment to explore change, which means we have to talk about, does it make sense to do something different? Then we have to ask them to actually change. This is the part where most salespeople go horribly wrong and they think that when they hand over the proposal at the end of a conversation that that's when the client decides to change. But there's no reason to give them a proposal if they don't know what they're changing to and agree that they need to do it now anyway. This is your compelling question. I would ask it in discovery, does it make sense, Michael, to do something different? And are we going to be able to get the resources on your side and the investment to be able to do this if this future state is right for you? I'm going to ask that early because I don't want to spend uh, six months with someone and find out that they have no real interest in changing, but uh -huh. it happens every day. And I see the pipelines where it's happening. I have to ask them to collaborate with me. So we build something that works to build consensus inside their company and bring in the right stakeholders. I've got to ask them to spend money, probably more money than they're spending now if they want a better result. And I've got to ask them to review the proposal and let me resolve their concerns. After that, the the rest, the close, the final ask is the easiest. That's the easiest thing on earth. You just say, Michael, I feel like we've done everything we need to to be able to move forward. If it's okay with you, I'd like to give you a contract and go ahead and put this in place for you. I, I mean, that, there's no no problem asking for that if you've done everything. But if you skipped a bunch of steps, like I didn't really collaborate, I'm just giving them a proposal because I know what they need. Mm -hmm. And if I don't know who the real stakeholders are and I don't have consensus from them, you should expect to lose because you didn't do the work necessary. But what you want is it linking all these things together from one commitment to the next commitment and smoothly trying to move people through these decisions that they have to make on their side. That's really what you're doing is facilitating their decision-making. So it seems like a lot of the work and the trans well, you always have to be transparent, obviously, but a lot of the work, the, the expectations, everything needs to be set in the beginning. And I, I saw your, some of your videos talked about that. And that uh, that's why I wanted to ask that question. I think that's great because we've, and I've made this mistake in the past too, where we've completely transformed our sales process. But in, in the beginning, we, we, I mean, we weren't really sit, we weren't doing as much. I mean, we were doing upfront, but we weren't doing as much upfront, like in discovery, but now we have a full discovery and planning process and it works so much better. We, we have all these expectations set in the beginning and you're kind of vetting them and you're getting a, um, a good feeling, whether they're, they're really interested or not, whether you need to spend your time with them. So I, I love what you said about that. Uh, thank you. It's all in the book. I think the book will help people. If they, if you're struggling controlling the process, I would go check that out. Cool. Um, so Anthony, just to jump a little bit here in your journey and just being an entrepreneur and owning businesses and companies and um, becoming a sales and marketing leader, what were some of the, essentially the toughest struggles that you experienced and how did you really overcome them in your journey? The toughest struggles as a, as a salesperson? I would say if you could talk about both would be fantastic, just as a salesperson and as an entrepreneur. Uh, let me think. Gosh, I, I, I don't typically frame things as that because I have uh, just an enormous sense of agency that you know I have the ability to do whatever I want to do. I, I'm wired that way. That That's just a, a certain wiring. I mean, challenges I've had have mostly been about uh, uh, the, the primary challenge, if I were to sum it up, 
is the last chapter in the Lost Art of Closing, which is execution, which means I can do a great job selling, get a contract signed, and then having the client truly make the changes that they need. That's probably the most difficult thing to do. And in in some businesses like staffing, I would have to get people to invest more, to change their company culture, to start teaching managers how to treat people, how to greet people, how to create uh, an environment that allowed them to retain the people and getting those kinds of changes, winning the deal is the easy part, getting the real change after you've won the deal, much, much more difficult. Uh, and th- those would be the primary challenges that I've had. I would say it was about getting the client to really do the things that they know they need to do, but are difficult and systemic. And the more you're willing to deal with the difficult and systemic stuff, the more of a trusted advisor you're going to be. And when you say changes, can you elaborate more on that? Are you are you talking about uh, like uh, upselling after initial closing deal? Or no, no, I'm I'm about? I'm talking about y- you want to retain the people that I placed on your site. Okay. And that means you have to start being nice to people and making it a, the kind of environment where they want to come to work or in a transformation in sales. Uh, I can train your people. I can do, give you a workshop. I can give you all the content you need, but if you don't hold them accountable, nothing happens. So it's the accountability now matters. It's, it's the bigger, more systemic changes. And if you have a culture that hasn't had accountability in it, then accountability is new and difficult. And if people haven't been trained and they don't know how to have the conversations and they don't know how to give people the help that they need, it can be very, very difficult. And those are the bigger challenges. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, And what are some of the tips for aspiring salespeople and sales leaders that you believe that they need to know to become the best possible in their areas? Anthony. Well, that, that that would be the tip. Become okay. the best that you possibly can, which means if you're in sales, you need to read books about sales, even though I know there are a bunch of people on the internet that tell you don't read sales books because you can't learn to sell from a book. And you can't learn to sell from a book. You can only learn to sell better from a book. Uh, you, you do have to actually be in front of clients to learn how to do what we do. Uh, I, I think that the more you have business acumen, the more you understand how to be a good business person, you have to sound like a good uh, general manager, like somebody who understands the business completely and can talk about it. Yeah, that's a, that's a change for, for people. And especially if they've never had a business of their own. The other thing is you need situational knowledge, which means you need to look at all the choices and see what other people are doing and decide what is better and why. And you have to be able to provide the advice. You should do this instead of that. And here's why you need to continually be learning. And I would tell you, if you have SMEs or subject matter experts, you should have 52% SME like knowledge about your whole solution. You need to know at least half as much as they do in every interaction. As a leader, I would tell you, you should shift your focus to the things that make you a leader. And everything that you need to know is about how helping other human beings produce better results uh, really works. And it's inspiration and influence and not force. It's not your title that matters. It's what do you how, what are you going to help these people become and where are you taking this organization and why should anyone help you with that? Those are the big things. So I would shift my focus to psychology and leadership if I was a sales manager uh, you should still read the sales books and go through whatever training you put your people through. But really now you're you're in the game of helping each person on your team turn in their very best performance ever year after year after year. And and that's about human beings. Perfect. I love that. Those are some great tips. Uh, I think a lot of people can really learn from that. 
and it's just such valuable insight. So thanks, Anthony, for, for saying, sharing all that. So to close things out, I always ask these last three questions. I call it the three hows. So Anthony, how do you define failure? How do you define entrepreneurship? And how do you define success? I define failure as information. And that's all you should define it as. If you fail, what you've got is information about what an experience was like and what you might do different in the future. How do I define entrepreneurship? Entrepreneurship is is very well defined already. It's it's taking a risk and starting something and going out on your own. And I think no matter if you decide to just put up some sort of a shop on the internet, whatever it is, you're an entrepreneur. It's probably one of the best things a person can do for themselves if they really want to get business chops mm-hmm. is to start something on their own. So they manage a profit and loss statement and a balance sheet and they get the experience of tax reporting and they'll have a lot better relationships with their clients when they understand that. Uh, success for me is is very, very personal. And I would tell you it's probably uh, different for everybody here. And I wouldn't want to impose my opinion on what success is. But I would tell you that the view that I look is when I'm on my deathbed, uh, w- what did I do? What contribution did I make while I was here? That's that's the way that I'm going to judge my success is did I make the contribution I was capable of? Because for me personally, the greatest sin is not living up to your full potential. Even though I believe none of us are able to live up to our full potential, we're, we're capable of so much more than we recognize that, that that bar is set as high as it possibly can be for all of us. That's, I'm, I'm very similar in regards to, how, in regards to um, how I think of success as well. I, I think the exact same way, actually. But no, that, that's cool. Great. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate it, Anthony. And thanks again. And, and where can everyone find you? Your website and social media handles and all that? TheSalesBlog.com is the best place. There's a newsletter pop-up. The Sunday newsletter goes out every Sunday morning, and it's probably my favorite piece of content every single week. And I do that so you get it on Sunday and you have time to look at it and then hit the ground running on Monday and connect with me anywhere on social, LinkedIn, uh, all all of them work for me. Okay, perfect. Anthony, thanks again. Thank you so much for for having me on. I really appreciate your time, your insights, and I really appreciate it. Thanks again. So, Again, everyone, this is Michael Giorgio, your host on Tales from the Pros, and until next time.